The title uh, to today's message is Justification by Faith Alone. We are going to be, again, in the book of Galatians. It's chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. So if you will turn with me there in your copy of God's Word. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, we are weak and needy. We need your help. We pray by the Holy Spirit that you would bless the preaching of your word, manifest your glory to us, build us up in Christ, Encourage us, Father. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In our previous sermon in the book of Galatians, we looked at the Apostle Paul fighting for the gospel. The Apostle Peter, along with Barnabas and the other Jewish Christians, isolated themselves from the Gentile believers in Galatia because they buckled to the peer pressure of the Judaizers and the men from James. The Judaizers and men from James were teaching that faith alone in Christ was not sufficient for salvation, but obeying certain precepts from the the Mosaic Covenant were still necessary to be saved. Now this, of course, was contrary to the gospel itself, and it had dangerous ramifications for the entire church, not just the the churches there in Galatia. Now up until this point in the letter, Paul has given a severe warning for adopting and propagating a false gospel. He has thoroughly defended his apostleship and thereby the gospel that he has been preaching. And then Paul publicly confronted Peter and the others for their hypocritical actions regarding the gospel. But now the apostle Paul starts to address the specific issues with the gospel that the Judaizers are preaching and the gospel that he has been preaching. And so he is still fighting to defend and preserve the true gospel. Now he does this by refuting false doctrine with the truth that comes from the word of God. Now you may have heard the phrase, doctrine divides, and it is spoken in a way that makes it sound as if we should avoid doctrinal disputes or even compromise our doctrine for the sake of unity. 
We are told that if someone is excluded because of our doctrinal distinctions, we should set that doctrine aside for the sake of inclusion because that is what love would have us to do. Now, folks, there are some doctrines that are not worth dividing over, all right, such as whether you're a post-millennial or amillennial. Our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, allows for both. We have members in this church that are amillennial, uh, post-millennial, premillennial, and, and even others. But when it comes to the doctrine of justification, there is no room for compromise. This doctrine is a matter of eternal life and death. There is nothing loving about compromising or setting aside a truth that determines the eternal state of all human beings. As Christians, we are called to unity in the truth, not unity for the sake of unity. Unity for its own sake will eventually force us to compromise everything, which is exactly what Satan wants us to do. Doctrine does divide, and in many cases, not only is it okay, it is necessary. And the doctrine of justification, justification is one of those cases. Now there's five different aspects that we're going to look at from these verses. Now the first is the false Jew-Gentile distinction. The second is understanding saving faith. The third is the error of reverting back to the law. The fourth is union with Christ. And finally, the fifth will be, is the necessity of grace. Now, verse 15 is where Paul starts to confront this false distinctions that the Jews have between themselves and the Gentiles. Now, folks, obviously there is a legitimate historical distinction between the Jewish people and the Gentiles from all other, all other nations. But the distinction that the Judaizers were making between themselves and the Gentiles was illegitimate. Notice Paul says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What does Paul mean when he says that? Paul is speaking in accordance with the way the Judaizers and the men from James think. It is self-righteous and it is condescending. This is the way Paul used to view himself as well. Now Paul is not speaking this way now because he agrees with this way of thinking. He does so to make a point. The Jews were God's chosen people in whom he entered into a covenant with and gave his law. And so the Jews saw themselves as righteous and accepted by God because they alone were God's covenant people and they alone followed the Mosaic Covenant and its laws. They were born into this. They were born into being in a covenant relationship with Yahweh, hence the phrase, Jews by birth. God did not give His law in written form or enter into a covenant relationship with any other nation on earth. And so in the eyes of the Jews, all other peoples and nations were unsaved, unrighteous sinners since obedience to the Mosaic Covenant was the only way to be right with the Lord. And so the contrast in verse 15 is between the Jews who see themselves as righteous because of their covenant status with God and unsaved Gentiles who don't have and therefore don't obey the Old Testament laws. That is what makes them Gentile sinners. 
No, even if the Judaizers and the men from James teach that you must believe in Jesus to be saved, they still are contrasting themselves with the Gentiles because they're still following the Old Testament laws and the Gentiles are not. Okay, again, they still believe obedience to the Mosaic precepts in addition to faith in Jesus is necessary to be right with God. And so the Gentiles who do believe in Jesus but still don't obey circumcision and the other precepts are still considered Gentile sinners and not righteous like the Judaizers and men from James. And so that is the false distinction. Circumcised Jews aren't lost sinners, but uncircumcised Gentiles are. But in verse 16, Paul exposes that false distinction completely. He says, look at this, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now folks, I want, us to, I want you to notice something. Paul says person. He does not say Jew or Gentile. He is erasing the Jew and Gentile distinction. He is lumping all of humanity together in verse, excuse me, verse 16. This is what he does in Romans 3.20 after showing no human being, Jew or Gentile, can be justified by works of the law. Justification by faith exists because outside of Jesus, not one human being that has ever existed has perfectly obeyed the law of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And so justification by works of the law is not an option for anyone, anywhere. Now we're going to expound on that a little more later, but at this point what we need to understand is that justification by faith levels the playing field. It puts every human being in the position of being a lost sinner who is justifiably damned by God because all of us have broken God's law. And this is why Paul says in verse 17, we too, speaking of the Jews, were found to be sinners just like the Gentiles by looking to Christ by faith since we too are lawbreakers. And so the point that Paul is making is that even though the Jewish people were unique among all other nations because of their covenant status with God and their possession of God's law, as lawbreakers, justification by faith was their only option as well. And so the self-righteous distinction that Judaizers were making between themselves and the Gentiles was false. And in light of this reality, the accusation that they were making in verse 17 that Jesus is the servant of sin because faith negates obeying Mosaic precepts is false. The Judaizers were saying that to teach salvation by faith in Christ alone, apart from works of the law, was to make Jesus a promoter of sin. By negating law obedience for salvation, Jesus and the apostles would be promoting lawlessness because sinners didn't need to obey the law to be right with God. Right? Ignore God's law, sin all you want, and you'll still go to heaven is what the Judaizers are accusing Paul's gospel of teaching. Now Paul blatantly refutes this in the letter to the Galatians itself. 
If you look at Galatians 5, 19-21, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, so the list is even longer, I warn you, and now look at this, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so these verses make it very clear that Paul had been teaching and is still teaching that those who practice lawlessness will not inherit eternal life. And we have to remember that Paul's teaching is not his own. He got it from Jesus. And so neither the Lord or Paul the Apostle promoted lawlessness. Willing obedience to God's law is the fruit of our justification. It is not the source of it. And that is what Jesus and the Apostles taught. And what makes this false accusation even worse is that Jesus is the epitome of the law of God in living flesh. Revelation 19.13 says that one of Jesus' names is in fact the Word of God. And so to accuse Jesus of being a promoter of sin is both ludicrous and blasphemous. Now what is interesting is that it was the Judaizers who were minimizing the law of God, though they claimed to be the ones who were honoring it. Now how is this the case? The Judaizers and men from James would not have claimed to have been sinless. Blood atonement for sin was a core teaching of the Mosaic Covenant. That's what all the Levitical sacrifices were for until Christ came. And so they acknowledged that they had broken God's law. They just believed that their faith in Christ plus their own obedience to the law of God made them righteous in God's sight. So think about it. The Judaizers were sinners who claimed that their own obedience to the law of God helped merit their salvation. If a sinner can attain to the standard of righteousness required by God's law, then that means that God's law is not so high or so holy that a sinner cannot meet its requirements. Salvation by obedience to the law of God minimizes the high standard of the law so that sinners are able to attain it. But, if the law of God is so impeccable in its standard of holiness that even the slightest infraction in thought, word, or deed meant you have failed to meet its standard, then no sinner could ever hope to perfectly keep it. And this is what salvation by faith teaches. The law is a reflection of the nature of God who is infinitely perfect and holy. And so salvation by faith alone magnifies the law of God because it acknowledges that the law, the law is so high and holy that a sinner's attempt to keep it is futile. And I believe this is what Paul is saying in Romans 3.31. He says, do we then overthrow this, the law by this faith? He says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And so ironically, it was the Judaizers who were making the law of God appear less holy 
and it was Paul's gospel that gave the law of God its proper honor and glory. Now, the second aspect of these verses that we're going to deal with is understanding saving faith. Now, we've already stated <clears throat> what the true gospel is, and it is that any and all sinners are justified before God by faith alone in Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, in Jesus Christ apart from works of the law. Now, we cannot overstate how important this doctrine is. John Calvin said that justification by faith is the hinge on which all true religion turns. Now what we're going to do is we're going to deal with various aspects of faith being the means by which we are justified before God. Now it is a simple concept. <clears throat> However, there are some aspects of it that we need to have a solid grasp on so that we, not, we do not become vulnerable to, to sophisticated attacks on this doctrine. Satan will find any way possible to twist and manipulate this truth because of how crucial it is. Now the first thing that I want us to do is to substantiate the concept of faith alone, not just faith. There's a couple of reasons for this. <clears throat> Reason number one is because Scripture does not use the term faith alone when it speaks of justification. It just uses the word faith. The one time we do read the words faith alone is when in James 2.24 it states that we are not justified by faith alone. Now we're not going to expound the book of James, but if you read it in its proper context, James is telling us faith without works is not a saving faith. This is what we just dealt with regarding the false accusation that Paul's gospel promoted lawlessness. There are countless people who claim Christ as Savior and Lord, but there is no holy fruit in their lives, and they live so contrary to what the Bible teaches, no one believes they are what they claim to be. And this is exactly what James is dealing with. He is not contradicting Paul. He is calling out those who make a false profession of saving faith. And so, if there isn't anywhere in the New Testament that uses the words faith alone, just faith, then why do we add the word alone to it in our doctrine? Why do we do that? Well, simply put, faith is always contrasted with the works of the law, not works and faith together. The options that the Bible sets forth is salvation by perfect obedience to the law of God, or faith in God's promise of salvation in Christ. There is no third option. And verse 16 makes this clear, and if you go to Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, we're not going to do that right now, it is even more explicit. And so the repetitive use of the word faith in contract with works of the law and nothing else demonstrates that it is in fact only faith that is being put forth as a means of salvation contrary to works. And so the overall witness of the scriptures demonstrates that the word faith is alone because it is in fact faith alone that saves. Now reason number two is that faith alone sets forth the complete sufficiency of faith apart from any works to save us. Look, the Roman Catholic Church does not deny faith in Christ. They absolutely teach faith in Christ is necessary for your salvation. 
but they teach that faith alone is not sufficient. All right, it's faith in Jesus Christ and the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church properly applied. And so, folks, look, the difference between faith and faith alone is no small distinction. When we are communicating the gospel to others, we need to be emphatic that it is faith all by itself, faith alone that grants us justification. Now, in a previous sermon in Galatians, I mentioned that believing the gospel was a command. And I want to revisit this issue with a little bit more depth. We need to understand that God does command all men to respond to the gospel in faith. Again, Acts 17.30 states that God commands all people everywhere to repent, which is also to command faith. The question we need to deal with is if I myself respond to the command of God to believe the gospel, and I am saved through my believing, then isn't my faith an act of obedience to a command of God? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is. Even Calvin called saving faith obedience to the gospel. So the next question that follows is, does that mean that my faith merits my salvation? After all, if my faith is obedience to a command of God, then I am saved by obeying God. And that means that by believing, I am saved through my own obedience, right? And the answer is no. We are not saved by our obedience to God's command to believe the gospel. Let me explain. Now before I proceed, I want you all to know, I am not trying to complicate the gospel. Alright, scriptural clarity on saving faith and obedience was one of the most significant distinctions that the reformers fought to make between themselves and the Roman Catholic Church. We need clarity, even ourselves today. Remember, Satan will use any angle possible to distort the gospel and cause the church to stumble. Now the first aspect to dealing with this issue is to realize that the Bible teaches that saving faith is a gift of God. In John chapter 6, Jesus is explaining to a crowd of Jews that have been following him who he really is, and yet none of them believe. In verse 36, he tells them, you have seen me, and he's saying, and so you've seen my miracles too. And he says, and yet you do not believe. In verse 44, Jesus says that no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. Now, if you read John chapter 6 yourself, you, you'll see that the context of Jesus' Jesus's discussion with the Jews uh, following him is all about faith, believing. And so Jesus is speaking of no one being able to come to him in saving faith apart from the work of the Father. Jesus reiterates this later in verses 63 through 65. He says that it is the Spirit who gives life he says the flesh, and that's the natural man, look, he says, is no help at all. And then Jesus says, that is why I told you, no one can come to me in saving faith unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now, Dr. Waldron in his book, Faith, Obedience, and Justification, puts it very well. 
He says, saving faith is itself the gift of the Father's grace through the Son's work in the Spirit's power. It's very well said. When a sinner savingly believes the gospel, they do so as a result of the regenerating power of God the Holy Spirit. Remember, the flesh is no help at all. Now, folks, I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand. We do the believing. We believe. We are commanded to repent and believe. God does not believe for us. But our believing is, as Jesus said, granted to us by the Father as a gift. Now, the next aspect of faith that we need to grasp is how it saves. Dr. Waldron again says it well. He says, faith is obedience to the gospel, but faith does not justify as obedience. Even though saving faith is obedience to the gospel, this faith causes us to look outside of ourselves to Christ and rest completely in Him. No, folks, many of us, if not all of us, are familiar uh, with someone telling us to turn around, close our eyes, and fall backwards. Okay, they say, trust me, I won't let you fall. Now, before you would agree to do this, or at least you should, right, you, you, would, you would first have to believe their promise that they will, in fact, catch you. You've, you believe the promise first, and then you fall back. Now, hopefully all of you have had uh, a good experience with this if you've done it. But this is what we do with Jesus. He promises to save us if we trust him as our Savior. So in a sense, we believe Jesus will catch us or save us, if you will, if we fall back on him as our Savior and God. And so we rest in Christ fully by faith because we trust him. So it is the believing and trusting aspect of faith that saves us, not the obedience aspect, even if that is in and of itself a gift from the Father. Now, some of you are no doubt saying to yourself, David, you know, this is all well and good so far, but what about repentance? The Apostle Paul said in Acts 20, 21, that he had been testifying privately and publicly to Jews and Gentiles, that salvation came through repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so repentance is an indispensable component of salvation. All right, again, there are many people, too many people, who claim to have put their faith in Christ as Savior, who show no evidence of turning away from their sins in repentance. They have conveniently deceived themselves. So if repentance is a necessary component of salvation, then how can we say that justification is by faith alone? Where is repentance found in this scheme of justification by faith alone? Well, first off, we need to realize that repentance and faith are distinct. They are distinct, but they are inseparable in the event of salvation. Repentance is not an event or a decision that a believer makes in a marked amount of time after saving faith. When we came to saving faith, repentance and faith were in our experience instantaneous. But if we put this process under a microscope, what we will find out is that faith precedes repentance. 
We will not turn away from sin and turn to a God that we have not already believed in. Why would we turn away from the sin that we loved, turn to a God that we hate unless our heart has been changed and we have been granted the gift of life and faith from the Father? We wouldn't. But when the gift of faith is granted, repentance toward God is the simultaneous result of faith. And this is why you see repentance and faith used interchangeably throughout the New Testament regarding salvation. Alright, and so justification by faith alone will always have repentance embedded within it. Alright, we're now going to look at the third important aspect of these verses, and that is the error of reverting back to the law. I want to read verses 18 and 19 again. It says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. And so here, Paul is continuing his argument that, that Jesus is not a promoter of lawlessness because faith alone negates obedience to the law for salvation. Paul, as a Pharisee, used to look to the law and his obedience to it for his justification. But it's made very clear in Romans 2 that God opened Paul's eyes and showed him that he was in fact condemned by the law, not saved through it. Now we're not going to read Romans 2, but essentially Paul is talking to the Jews who boast in the law, just like the Judaizers did. And he tells them that having the law of God, unlike the Gentile nations, did not save them because they broke it. They were lawbreakers, not law keepers. And since God is just, God will punish lawbreakers. And so in verse 18, Paul is saying, Why would I revert back to the law of God for my justification when the law is what condemns me? He says, If I rebuild what I tore down, I'm just reiterating my condemnation. And so he says it was through understanding that the law condemned me that I died to it as a way to be righteous in the sight of a holy God. That is the meaning of his statement. Through the law, I died to the law. And as Christians, we need to remind ourselves of this when we look to our own obedience to find our comfort in God. To rely on our obedience to God for our peace with Him is to ignore what Paul is saying here. Personal obedience looks to the law, and since we still sin, the law can only condemn. Now there is nothing wrong with us examining our lives to see if there is the fruit of obedience. We are commanded by God in 2 Corinthians 13.5 to examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. And that absolutely includes evidence that we are in fact obeying God's law. The thing is we don't stop there. We don't stop with ourselves. After we see some fruit on the tree, whether it's a little bit of fruit or a lot of fruit, we look away from ourselves and we look to Christ. Christ is our peace. He is at 50% of our peace with God. He is at 99% of our peace with God. Jesus is 100% our peace and comfort with God. In fact, even our fruit of obedience stems from Him. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. John 15, 5. He is the vine. We are the branches. 
And so the fruit in our life is evidence that we are rooted in Christ by faith. Now, what does Paul say happened to him when he died to the law as a means of salvation, but instead looked to Christ by faith? He said that he was now living to God. And this brings us to verse 20 and the next aspect of these verses, which is union with Jesus Christ. Verse 20 again, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now in the time remaining, we cannot plumb the the depths of of these verses. Okay, We're only going to swim a few feet down. And these aren't the only verses in the Bible that speak specifically of our union with Christ. John 14, 20 and John 17, 21 are both uh, very good examples as well. But what does Paul mean when he says, I've been crucified with Christ? Paul was not physically on that cross with Jesus. Well, without getting too in-depth, what we need to understand is that we are delving into the work of Christ as our covenant representative and mediating high priest. Adam, the Son of God, represented humanity in the Garden of Eden. Adam's obedience was our obedience. His sin was our sin. He was our first covenant representative. Likewise, Jesus is the covenant hand and representative of all his people. Everything that Jesus did, he did on behalf of the church. When Jesus was on the cross, all of his people were on that cross with him because he represented them. As 1 Peter 3.18 says, the just for the unjust... And because Jesus represented us on that cross, all of our sins were on that cross as well. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He became sin on our behalf. Now understand, Jesus didn't take sin upon Himself on that cross in a general sense. As our covenant head, He took on our sins specifically on that cross. And that's how we get our sins paid for. And so we, along with all of our sins, were on that cross with our mediating high priest. Now the payment of sin requires the shedding of blood resulting in death. And so Jesus had to shed his blood and die to atone for our sins. And so when Jesus died on that cross, all of the people that he represented died with him. And this is what Paul means when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul realizes that Christ's death was in a covenantal sense his death. The old self-righteous Paul who was condemned by God because it was a lawbreaker died when Jesus died on that cross. Likewise, if you are a Christian, your old self and all your sins died on that cross 2,000 years ago as well. Now, there are huge implications to this truth, and we're going to get to them in a minute. But understand that this is step one in our union with Jesus. The old Paul, the old us, died in Christ on that cross. Now, the, what, the question is, what happened to Jesus after he, was, after he died and he was buried? Well, he was resurrected to a new glorified life. Now, if Jesus was still dead... 
Paul could not say in verse 20 that Christ lives in him. Paul is not making a sentimental statement. Okay, He's making a statement of reality. Jesus lives in Paul because Jesus is actually alive. Now we don't want to misunderstand what Paul means in verse 20 when he says he no longer lives. Christians are not soulless bodies that have been taken over by the Spirit of God as if we're animated spiritual zombies. Okay, We are still who we are as individuals with our peculiarities and our character traits. Before I was a Christian, I loved hot wings. I'm a Christian, I still love eating hot wings. <laughs> okay, What Paul is saying is that we do not live unto God in and of ourselves, not even after we are saved. The old Paul was dead to God, but now the new Paul lives to God through Christ. Again, Adam's life was our life. His sin and death was our sin and death. And so now, Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. And His resurrected life is now our life. We live to God because Jesus, in His resurrected humanity, which is His new glorified, indestructible human life is our life. And that is what union with Christ means. We are intimately joined to Jesus forever. Now one of the big implications uh, to this is if Jesus now has a new indestructible human life and that life is our life, then we are to live even now in that reality we are already participating in that resurrected life. In our union with Christ, we died with Him on the cross, we were buried with Him in the grave, and we were resurrected with Jesus when He came up out of the grave. Now, obviously, we have not yet received all the benefits of Jesus' resurrected life. We still battle with uh, temptation and sin, and we still have our old decaying bodies. I am reminded of that quite often. But as Christians, we have new hearts that love God and love His law, and we have the Holy Spirit living within us, which is how Christ dwells within us even now. <clears throat> and so in verse 20, when Paul says, I now live by faith in the Son of God, he's saying, I now live my life believing this new reality about myself. As Christians, we live by faith, believing this reality of our new resurrected life in Christ. And this is what Paul means in Romans 6.11. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. You're not in Adam anymore. And alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are to believe what God has said about us and then live accordingly. And this is what it means to live our life by faith in the Son of God. I love the way Joel Beakey and Michael Barrett put it in their book on radical holiness. It's so simple, but it's so good. He says, they say the link between theology and practice is faith. The link between theology and practice is faith. That's what it is, folks. And as we just read, that life is a life lived unto God, pursuing righteousness and killing sin. Now, something else that Paul is doing here is contrasting the life of death, which is the life the Judaizers are living, by trying to live unto God in their own obedience. And he's contrasting with true life, which is by faith alone in Christ. 
He is showing the Galatian Christians who are falling for this false gospel that they can only live unto God by faith alone in Christ apart from any of their own works. And so he is still engaged in this rescue mission of the Galatian Christians by fighting for the true gospel. All right, now before we can proceed, there's no way I can skip over the end of verse 20. It says, Jesus gave himself for us because he loves us. Folks, this is not an esoteric, abstract love. This is an actual, personal, subjective love for each and every one of us. Now, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he tells the Father that, uh, <clears throat> that he desires that where he is, he wants his people to be with him. Why? So that they can see his glory. Now, folks, we understand Jesus doesn't want us to see his glory because he needs us to tell him how awesome he is. Jesus knows who he is. He doesn't need our affirmation for him to be fulfilled as a person. Jesus wants us to see his glory because he loves us. And to see his glory is the greatest privilege any human being will ever enjoy. And not only that, we too will be glorified as a benefit of our union with Christ. Folks, we need to understand that belie believing that Jesus loves us so much that he died for us so that we could be with him and enjoy his glory forever is indispensable to us persevering in faith. When you are ready to throw in the towel because you have had it, by faith, you remind yourself, God the Son came down from heaven, took on flesh and died to make you his own. That truth needs to permeate our very soul regardless of our life circumstances. Because look, folks, there is no greater reality for any human being than to know that you are deeply loved by eternal God. Yeah. Alright, finally, the last aspect of these verses is the necessity of grace. Let's read verse 21. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Folks, Jesus did not come and live and die on our behalf to get us halfway to God and then leave the other half up to us. All right, God is not a fool <laughs> who would leave the success of his son's work in the hands of sinners. And that is what faith plus works teaches us. That is what the Judaizers were teaching. Remember, justification by faith alone teaches us that we look completely outside of ourselves for our salvation, which means our salvation is all of Christ, which then means it must be all of grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. The moment you add anything, no matter how small to faith, you undermine the sufficiency of Christ's work, and the grace of God is no longer the sole source or foundation of our justification. Remember the quote from Wilcox in his book, A Drop of Honey from the Rock of Christ. Add anything to Christ, no matter how small for your salvation, and you unchrist him. We are saved completely by faith alone. 
which necessitates being saved by Christ alone, which means it is all grounded in the grace of God alone. So we are to believe it and live accordingly. All right, let's pray. Father, help us to believe this new reality about ourselves, that we are in union with Christ, that we are already participating in His resurrected life, which is a life of righteousness and joy. Father, help us to examine ourselves in the faith, but always look to Christ alone for our peace and comfort with You. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.